Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week we're doing something a little different as we take a look back at what was a tumultuous year in US politics and current affairs. From all the way across the pond, RT's Washington correspondent Brian O'Donovan is going to guide us through it all, from an insurrection to the challenges of COVID to President Biden's dealings with volatile world leaders. Brian, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Now, Brian, we thought that 2020 was an unprecedented year for the US. I mean, we had the divisive election in the midst of a pandemic, but 2021 has proven to be just as explosive. And just six days into the new year, President Joe Biden was faced with an attack on the US Capitol. I feel like that must have been a real where were you moment for people, particularly in Washington. So where were you? Can you tell us about the day from your perspective? Yeah, so the day began, people might recall, not outside the Capitol building, but it began outside the White House. And the day started with Donald Trump holding this big Save America rally in the Ellipse, which is the big green area in front of the White House. And there was thousands and thousands of thousands of his supporters gathering there. I mean, you could say really that whole incident began two or three days before because his supporters started to arrive in Washington in the days leading up to that. And we went to those rallies in the city, in Washington, D.C., and I could definitely detect a change in tone, the Donald Trump supporters up to that, when I would go to a Donald Trump rally, they would be perfectly friendly and nice, even though Donald Trump was calling us fake news media and they were booing us and all the usual pantomime and drama. But when I went up to interview them, they were perfectly friendly. But I did notice in the days leading up to January 6th, there was a change, there was an anger, they felt their election had been stolen from them. They believed the lies that the election was rigged and that Joe Biden had cheated. And what was happening was, Myself and my cameraman would do a live report into the six o'clock or the nine o'clock news and they would stop and they would listen. And when we'd finish, they would start shouting at us. And that had happened repeatedly because they would have heard us talking about how Donald Trump was lying. So roll on January 6th. The day began, as I say, in front of the White House on the ellipse. And we were there when he said those words of let's march down to the Capitol building and I'll be there with you. And you have to fight and you have to fight to take back your country and all those inflammatory words that were then used in various investigations afterwards. My cameraman and I then, for technical reasons, had to go back to our office, which isn't too far away, to edit a package for the one o'clock. Well, for us, it's one o'clock. It's the six one news back home in Ireland. And we were planning on going down to the capital then. And as we were in the office finishing our edit, we could see on the screens that it was all kicking off. So we made our way down to the capital building. And it was a bizarre scene of just seas of Donald Trump flags and supporters. And we set up to do our live report at this stage. We were approaching our nine o'clock news deadline. And very similarly, when we finished that report, a group of Donald Trump supporters had stopped nearby to listen to us. And they were very, very aggressive and started shouting at us. And we were worried because, you know, media had been attacked that day, uh, police had been attacked that day. And as we were making our way to the Capitol, reports were coming in that someone had been shot, that people were hiding under desks, just this chaotic scene unfolding that we all saw on our screens. And I'll never forget, as we were being shouted at by those supporters, one lone police officer who was on his own walked up and all he did was is everything okay here guys and it was just enough to diffuse the situation the group moved on we all moved on and we were very grateful to him because he was on his own they could have turned on him too thankfully they didn't and the day moved on from there and then i mean look look at what unfolded thereafter another impeachment uh an unprecedented level of uh shock i think and horror in many quarters at what had played out unbelievable scenes that nobody could ever have predicted. And how significant a moment do you think that was in US politics? I mean, on on the ground, what were the reactions of sort of ordinary Americans? 
I mean, I remember speaking to neighbors and friends. They were upset. They would say things like, I don't know what's happening to my country. They'd put their head in their hands. They'd shake their heads. And it, for me, it was another reminder. And I had lots of moments like this, Michelle, in my four years in Washington, where I would cover this big, unbelievable event, oftentimes something that Donald Trump had said or something that he had done or an event like the storming of the Capitol building. And I, of course, would be caught up in it and I would be have this front row seat and I'd be reporting on it and I would be in the midst of it. But I wasn't living it in the sense that I was an Irish person visiting this foreign country. The American friends and neighbors that we had had a different reaction. For them, it was upsetting and it was sad to see that this was happening to their country. And as I say, it was a reminder to me always that I was a guest in this country covering it, being in the midst of it, but not living it and feeling it in the way that they did. And it's obviously been a real baptism of fire for Joe Biden and his presidency. Would you say from what you've seen and from speaking to other Americans, I mean, do they think he's doing a good job? It doesn't seem from the polls that they think he is. No, I mean, I would say the Joe Biden presidency definitely started well. Remember, he came in on this, I mean, I'm going to forget his inauguration even. It was like being in a military war zone in downtown Washington, D.C. Every street was blocked with a military vehicle, armed National Guard troops, armed police, roadblocks. You could barely move around the city. Everything was in lockdown to physically get into the National Mall in front of the Capitol building where he was being inaugurated. We had to go through so many layers of security. Show so I mean, Washington's always a secure city and you always have to show ID to get into things. But this was an unprecedented level. I had never seen anything like it. And that is what he was inaugurated into. This high secure, high tension atmosphere. And, you know, his inauguration speech was all about unity, bringing people together, overcoming these challenges, which all speeches are on inauguration day. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. I mean, very early on, he tried to pass legislation. He got some of his COVID stimulus plans through, but without any Republican support. And there was a moment in terms of political divisiveness, particularly when you brought Donald Trump into the mix, that you thought initially that Republican leadership, like Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, or the uh, Senate uh, minority leader, Mitch McConnell, they criticized Donald Trump and they said, yes, he is to blame for the storming of the Capitol building. But they very much quickly kind of changed their tune. They wanted to move on from it. They didn't want to deal with that anymore. And what we saw is that political divisiveness really became rock solid and no Republican would vote for anything to do with the Democrats. The Democrats wanted nothing to do with the Republicans. And it was a real shame. And it was this real divisiveness. It was an us versus them mentality that unfortunately has persisted. In terms of Joe Biden's approval ratings, they are really, really bad. And he has had a bad few weeks. I would say his first maybe, you know, six months of his presidency, everything was going okay. COVID was improving. The economy was improving. One of his big problems then was the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was chaotic and a disaster. And other than the chaos, I, I think one of the things that bothered people about that Afghanistan withdrawal was Joe Biden was supposed to be the foreign policy president who got it who got international affairs. He'd been so long a senator, so long a vice president, that he knew world affairs far, far better than Donald Trump. But that idea got upended. He was also supposed to be the sympathetic, empathetic president who understood human suffering and tragedy and loss. But when it was put to him in one of his early interviews about the Afghan withdrawal, about these chaotic scenes of people clinging to wheels of airplanes and desperately trying to leave Kabul airport, he sort of dismissed it as, oh, that was a few days ago. It's fine now. And I think 
people's views of him were really upended by the Afghanistan withdrawal and it damaged him. And then you can layer in other factors that have been going on here. Inflation is through the roof. There's a sense that the economy, although the official figures are showing the economy is doing okay, I think there is a sense from people out there that it's sluggish, that we're still not back to where we want to be. And uh, he is most definitely struggling. I mean, it's interesting to hear what you were saying there uh, about you know, people's reaction to what happened in Afghanistan, uh, because I often think that, you know, international views uh, and international media coverage of what's happening in the US can sometimes be very different from the perceptions on the ground from ordinary people in America. So I mean, from what you're saying, there was a real fallout from what happened there. I think so. I think there was a sense of this did not go well. Look, some would say it was never going to be smooth. It was never going to be easy. You were never going to just withdraw overnight and everything would be fine. It gave his critics so much ammunition and fire and Donald Trump was so quick to come out and the Republican leadership was so quick to come out and point out things like, well, you've left them with, you know, billions of dollars worth of US uh, weaponry that now they have. The Taliban are back in power. So after the America's longest war, after spending so long in this country, what did we achieve? You've pulled, you know, Joe Biden would push back and say, look, it was never going to be easy. This was America's longest war ever. The popular opinions were, we need to get out of this. And he can turn around and say, we got out of this. At the time, you'll recall American lives were lost, American troops died, and people thought this was his worst day as president. And it was. I mean, he had overseen this disastrous pullout, resulted in the loss of so many Afghan lives, and now also American lives. And I do remember at the time thinking, though, yeah, but you know what? The news cycle here moves at a huge, huge pace. Will Americans and will the media still be talking about this a week and two weeks from now? And to be honest, they weren't. And in the recent weeks, they definitely are not. People move on so quickly here. I mean, the next big election here is the midterms uh, in November of next year. Is Afghanistan going to be on people's minds when they go to the polls? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, this year has just been so packed with with news and huge events that like it, it's hard to even believe that you know that the Taliban takeover was this year i'm wondering if you think that because of the the big comparisons people were making between trump and biden and everybody just sort of expected that that this would be better and much better do you think people's expectations of biden were unrealistic and he was never going to meet meet that no matter what he did when i speak to a lot of people people who voted for biden it was a lot of people it was we had to get trump out. And that's fine. And it worked and they got him out. But it's never the best basis for choosing your candidate. And we saw during the primaries even last year with the Democrats, you had this wonderful, diverse field, black, white, old, young, male, female, gay, straight, and they ended up with a white guy in his 70s. And that was born out of this is the guy that has the best chance of getting rid of the other guy. And they were right. And that's what happened. So I get this sense a year on that it was get Trump out, get Trump out, grant we succeeded there. Biden comes in and as I say, the first few months went fine. Then we had big events that have tripped him up and that have caused him a lot of trouble. And then people focus on his age. They focus on his communication and presentation style and not giving great speeches. Um, he's criticized, the president gets criticized all the time for not doing enough you know, media interviews, not speaking to the media enough, his people would push back and say he does do enough media interviews. So that's my sense here that for many, now don't get me wrong, some people still love him, they're diehard fans of his, and that's fine. But I think for many, 
the sense was we need somebody to get rid of Trump. That worked. And then once they got who they got, they started questioning, well, maybe this isn't the perfect guy. I, I do keep reminding people, though, it's still very early in his presidency. For some people, it feels like Joe Biden has been there a very long time. He hasn't. He hasn't even been there a year. I guess, again, I come back to the midterms. That'll be the big test in November. The problem for Joe Biden is that traditionally the party of the president does very badly in the first midterm election of their presidency. So, And, and as you know, that the margins are so tight right now in the House and the Senate. You're talking just a one seat really in the Senate and just a handful of seats in the House. So, you know, the Democrats could be in for some trouble when it comes to the midterms. Of course, lots of talk here now about of Biden's age. And there's always been the sense that he was only ever going to be a one-term president and he wouldn't seek re-election. So then the focus switches to Kamala Harris. And there's been some questions about Kamala. Her own approval ratings are even lower than Joe Biden's. There's a sense that she's been invisible. She's been given these difficult tasks like solving the border issue, which she hasn't done, solving the attack against voting rights, which she has yet to do, and that she hasn't been a particularly strong media performer. She hasn't been a particularly strong policy performer. So, you know, the latest suggestion here was that Pete Buttigieg, who was a candidate, of course, for the Democratic primary and is now the uh, Secretary for Transportation, that he could sort of swoop in and be maybe the default candidate should Joe Biden not to run. But we don't know. I mean, it is still three years away. It's still an eternity away. But certainly uh, the Biden first year, as I say, you could almost split that first year. First six months, good. Second six months, not so good. And in terms of reporting for, for yourself, your own job, I mean, have things changed for you on the ground reporting on Biden versus reporting on Trump? And I'm wondering if that hostility that you were talking about uh, on that day in the Capitol, has that sort of lingered? Uh, no, from a reporter perspective, from my perspective, certainly not. I mean, that would have been something that I would have very much encountered at a Donald Trump event, sort of speaking to Donald Trump people on a given day. What I would say about media access, it was interesting to see, as we know, the Trump presidency would have taken COVID less seriously anyway. That was just their way of doing things. And that actually meant, in terms of media access, the getting into events, the getting into the White House, the holding of events, that was easier. In the initial months of the Biden presidency, they sort of ramped up their COVID protections. It was very difficult to get into the White House, very limited. You had to go through quite a lot of protocols and procedures. That has eased somewhat now. So what you have now is that you're pretty much back to the way it was with Donald Trump. The difference with the Trump presidency is you have the daily White House press briefing here. Jen Psaki, the press secretary, will give a briefing every day or one of her deputies. Donald Trump very much did away with that. You could go a year and there wouldn't be a press briefing hardly. Uh, and, and then they were sporadic and they, they, they weren't very uh, consistent. It's different under the Biden administration is the return to that more traditional way of doing things. Thankfully, what Joe Biden has also returned to doing is what we call chopper talk, which is when he walks out of the Oval Office, walks across the South Lawn of the White House to get onto Marine One, his helicopter. He'll stop and he'll talk to the media. Donald Trump, that was a great way of getting Donald Trump because he would stop and he would talk to the media. He would spend 30, 40 minutes walking up and down the press line, talking to everybody, including ourselves at RTE, which was great. Uh, Joe Biden has started to do a little bit of it, not as much. He, he doesn't spend as much time talking to the press, but he's certainly starting to do that again. I saw, I was it a couple of days ago, you, you tried to get in an Irish question as, as he was on his way to the helicopter, but uh, he, he wasn't biting, not really. It was a bizarre answer, Michelle, because what he actually said was, I said, 
can I ask you a question about Ireland? And his response was, right, not right now. You can ask me about Ireland anytime and walked away. Like, anytime, well, but not now. Exactly, but not, <laughs> but not right now. So anyway, I have a few more days left to here in Washington. I may make another trip down and see if I can get him. But unfortunately, that is the way it goes with these presidential events. You have to uh, have a loud voice and shout and try to be heard over the roar of the helicopter and the, all the other journalists who were shouting as well. And I mean, as you mentioned, the, the treatment and the attitude towards COVID under the Trump administration was very different. How do Americans feel about Biden's handling of COVID? Unfortunately, when the numbers started to tick up again and these big concerns about the Omicron variant, I'm afraid that is another reason that his uh, approval ratings uh, aren't doing too well. There's a sense that we're still not there yet. One of the big problems here in the US is vaccination rates. As you probably know, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy. So although the Americans had the vaccines first and were administering them very quickly, I would like to say from January, February, I know me personally, I got mine well before family and friends back home in Ireland, including my parents in their 70s who should have been getting them far sooner. But it was a very quick turnaround here in terms of the vaccine. But then you had vaccine hesitancy. You had large groups, uh, a lot of Republican states, Southern states, who were slow to get it. I did hear recently that fresh concerns over Omicron, fresh concerns over another wave have boosted up the vaccination numbers a little. It's interesting in terms of um, lockdowns, shutdowns, restrictions, that's not very evident here. I mean, shops, bars, restaurants, everything's open, everything's just operating as normal as it has been. I look back over COVID actually, and really certainly here in Washington, DC, you know, we, we certainly had restrictions at the start, March, April, May, maybe even June of last year, but things kind of reopened and they never really shut down again since then. You go to a southern state, Georgia, Florida, Texas, you barely see any closures at all. Mask wearing as well, of course, is different here. It depends on where you go. If you travel south, you won't see anybody wearing masks here in Washington, up in New York still a lot of mask wearing. And that's one of the interesting things about COVID, I think, in the US is just highlighted that, yes, it is one country, the United States of America, but it could be 50 different countries, 50 different states, everybody having different rules, everybody has different attitudes, and depending on politics and depending on geography and depending on a whole load of other factors, that was also true when it came to the handling of COVID. And I mean, what was it like at a personal level? Because you obviously lived in, in the US throughout the whole pandemic. Did you find yourself looking back at Ireland and, and making those comparisons and thinking, you know, well, I wish we were doing that here, but also I'm glad I'm not home for that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a good way of characterizing it. There was both of that. There were some things, for example, so I have uh, two daughters and the schools in Washington, D.C. closed, would you believe, Michelle, for almost a full calendar year. It was unbelievable. They, they went out in the March of 2020, and they really didn't come back until the March of 2021, which was awful. I mean, it was it was very difficult. And my two were young uh, then. They would during the height of that, they would only have been like seven and ten. The seven-year-old in particular hated virtual learning and homeschooling, and I'm sure every parent out there with a five, six, seven, eight-year-old could empathize. That you know, they would they did not want to sit at a screen. They did not want to be doing a virtual class. It just did not work. I feel for that age. The unfortunate thing with the schools. That went on and on. We, we, we were slightly luckier here. My wife is a primary school teacher back in Ireland, so she was obviously able to help the girls with their homeschooling. But that certainly went on for a long time, and that was deeply frustrating. And that was very much a case of looking at Ireland going, wow, the schools are open again. The flip side of that, though, as I mentioned earlier, pretty much while the schools were closed, nothing else was. Shops, bars, restaurants, travel. There were no restrictions. Everything else was pretty much open. 
just the schools, which was most definitely uh, frustrating and difficult for us. But come March of this year, everything opened again and it was wonderful to get them back in and uh, to get everything up and running. And now, while there's concerns over the new variants, while the numbers are ticking up, there's no talk here of closures or lockdowns. I don't think that's going to be a runner with the American people. As you know, they're a very, you know, these are my rights. I don't want my freedoms impacted. And I don't think Joe Biden is willing to go there in terms of any severe restrictions or lockdowns anytime soon. I want to move away from talking about COVID because there have obviously been a lot of other major issues in America over the last year. Uh, and when we had you on the podcast around this time last year, actually, uh, to, to do another look back, Black Lives Matter was a huge talking point. Uh, it doesn't seem to have received as much attention, maybe just in the media uh, in, in 2021. But how has it been going on the ground for ordinary Americans? Yeah, I mean, Black Lives Matter was most definitely one of the big stories of 2020. I look around now, particularly in downtown Washington, D.C., there are huge posters on the sides of big buildings saying Black Lives Matter. Uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza is the street that leads up, leads up to the White House that's been repainted and renamed with the name Black Lives Matter. But other than those visual reminders, it's something that isn't spoken about in any great way right now. Um, does that mean everything's been fixed? Absolutely not. There's still huge problems of inequality here uh, racism experienced by people. I suppose this year on that front, we sort of saw a switch from the on the street protests to the courtroom. And you had George Floyd, the murderer of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, the police officer. His trial was in the spring of this year. And I was up there uh, in, in Minneapolis for the, the trial. And that moment where those guilty verdicts came down for Derek Chauvin at the eruption of cheers and delight among the people who had gathered outside. And I thought that was a big moment and an important moment. And of course, everybody takes a step back and say, what if that verdict had gone another way? And what if it had gone a different direction? What would have happened? More recently than that, we had another trial uh, for Ahmad Arbery's killers. He was a young black man jogging in Georgia. And these men came after him in pickup trucks and was shot and they shot and killed him and they were found guilty as well and again another moment of what would happen here you then did this bizarre trial in the middle of those two which really got everybody i think wondering and questioning it was sort of an issue that moved beyond race in some ways it was kyle rittenhouse the young man who shot three killing two injuring one three people at a black lives matter protest in uh, kenosha wisconsin he claimed he was it was self-defense. He was this kind of vigilante who was a defending property. He shot them. And it brought up these huge questions of uh, the right to bear arms, huge questions about what is self-defense. And then that big divide of where you saw one side going, the Black Lives Matter protest movement was excellent. It was all about raising these concerns. But then you had the negative side of that and people focusing on the negative and the rioting and the vandalism and the violence that followed some of those protests. And Kyle Rittenhouse became this sort of poster boy for those who were anti that movement, and particularly who were very angry about the level of destruction that had occurred in the aftermath of many of those protests. And he was found not guilty. So that's my point, that this year, I think we saw those questions of race, equality, big divisive issues, not so much being fought on the protest line in the streets, but moving to the courtroom. And when it comes to the cases, particularly those involving police officers like Derek Chauvin, 
what kind of an impact do you think that has on how people feel about policing in the US on that ongoing discussion about profiling and discrimination in police forces? I've seen an unfortunate dividing line coming sometimes in some people's minds of pro-police, anti-police, pro-Black Lives Matter, anti-Black Lives Matter. And it's far more nuanced and complicated than that. But for some, it became this black and white issue that if you supported the police service, you were one way. If you supported the Black Lives Matter protest movement, you were another way. But of course you can't, it is not one or the other. The vast majority of police officers are fine, upstanding law enforcement officials. It's only the handful that will go down the route of acting in these ways and treating African-Americans in these ways. And for African-American people, I think it's very difficult for them. I'll never forget interviewing a woman outside the White House last year during one of the Black Lives Matter protest movement. And I said, well, what's it like? I mean, what's the reality on the ground? And she said, she'll never forget that one time she cut her hair short and she got pulled over a couple of times by police officers for no reason. And she used to say to them, you, you're doing this because you thought I was a man. And of course, they would never admit that. But that was her firm belief because they thought they saw a black man driving a car. They have to pull him over. And there's this expression here. He was his, his only guilty crime was driving while black. You know, that African-Americans disproportionately targeted by police officers. I think Democrats would acknowledge, though, that that down the line, one way or the other argument damaged them in this way. Donald Trump did a very good job of saying that Democrats are the radical socialists who want to defund the police and take away your police services. And of course, it wasn't true. He said Joe Biden wants to defund the police. That wasn't true. Joe Biden said he would never defund police departments. But it was an attack that stuck. And Joe Biden, after his own election, was recorded on a conference call with senior Democrats talking about how, yes, they elected me, but down ballot, other candidates in the Democratic Party, he said, were most definitely damaged by that defund the police idea that the Republicans had put out there, that the Democrats are against the police department, the Democrats want to defund the police department. That's very damaging. People don't like that idea. Uh, so it's a complex issue. And it's one that I think got split into this camp of you're either on one side or the other, but it's far, far more nuanced and difficult than that. Yeah. And another complex issue uh, and a big debate uh, heading into the new year is the abortion debate. And we've seen a number of states triggering laws that could automatically make abortion illegal if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. And if that decision isn't likely until the middle of next year, do you think we can expect a very ugly debate in the lead up to that? Yeah, and I mean, it's already getting ugly. And I think huge concern among the pro-choice groups that this is it. It's all over. Uh, Roe v. Wade will be overturned in some way in June when they rule. I mean, just to give your listeners the background, I'm sure they know there's two states at the moment that everybody's focusing on, Texas and Mississippi. Texas came up with a very sort of nuanced, unusual way of getting around this, whereby the state empowered individuals to sue other individuals if they feel they are enabling an abortion. And it was thought that maybe the Supreme Court would strike this down. They didn't. And of course, as everybody will know, the Supreme Court now is heavily conservative. 6-3 majority of conservative justices, they have all the power. So the sense is that the abortion rulings, the abortion debate is heading in a very, very definite direction. And it's interesting covering these Supreme Court cases. The other one then, of course, is Mississippi, where they introduced a ban on abortions uh, after 15 weeks, which was lower than the standard that had been set through Roe Ro versus Wade. So it was in contravention of that. 
And when they hear these cases, you hear the justices speaking about their views of it, asking questions. But the way they word the questions and the way they suggest things gives you an inkling of where they're going. And Justice Brett Kavanaugh in one of his statements suggested that maybe, you know, the Supreme Court should just remove itself from the entire abortion debate altogether and get out of it. So, yeah, strong sense that in June, when this comes before the court again and when the ruling is announced, that there will be something, even if it's just an upholding of the specific Mississippi uh, abortion ban, that, of course, would have huge knock-on effects. And I think there's like 20, 21 states out there getting ready. They have the laws ready to go, and they're watching Texas, and they're watching Mississippi, and depending on what way those rulings go, they'll move quickly with their own. And then you'll have a situation where half America, the more conservative-leaning Republican states, will introduce abortion restrictions, and then the other half, the more liberal Democrat states, will leave it as is. And that's another big divisive issue here in the U.S. I've always been struck very early on, actually. I didn't understand, I didn't appreciate how divisive the abortion issue is. And you see it at protests on the ground. You see it when you go to certain parts of the country. Even I could be doing a completely different story about politics or about a candidate in an election and you get talking to people. And oftentimes abortion will come up as a big, big issue. And is this something that's totally out of Biden's hands? I mean, obviously he can't intervene when it comes to court decisions, um, but are there any actions that he you foresee him taking in the new year? He has spoken about bringing in legislation at the congressional level to protect rights. Um, but as we know here in the US, you're split in three. It's the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And the, the Supreme Court is the arbiter of everything at the end. It all ends up there. All the big issues of the day end up before the court, whether it's guns, immigration, abortion, same-sex marriage. He can try to bring in some legislation to protect some rights, to try to prevent some restrictions, but that's predicated on him being able to get the legislation through Congress, which as we know right now is extremely divided. He has struggled to get a lot of his legislation through so far. So who's to say that an abortion bill wouldn't be equally difficult in the new year? But they will certainly try, and he has certainly spoken about it, but there's no guarantee it would pass. And moving now outside of America, what do you think the big international challenges are that lie ahead for Biden? Internationally, I guess we saw it this week, last week, when he was speaking with Vladimir Putin about Ukraine. So that is definitely one that is there. I mentioned the Afghan situation seems to have calmed down and fallen off the agenda for now. There's nothing to say that that won't rare up again, though. I mean, of course, the big concern is with the Taliban back in control, does it become a hotbed of terrorism again? Where is that going to go? Interesting as well, I suppose you always have to keep an eye on North Korea. There's talk now of some sort of an agreement with uh, South Korea, China, and the US, and North Korea in some sort of ending formally, once and for all, the Korean War issue and bringing a formal end to that. I think Russia, though, will be his one of his main focuses China as well, you know, I and mean, we have this situation. It was almost funny during the Trump presidency because he had these bizarre relationships with these former, with these adversaries, these foreign adversaries like Russia. Of course, you could write a book. Many have been written about Donald Trump's relationship with Russia. The Mueller report cozying up to Vladimir Putin and then his relationship with China, where he sort of flipped from being the best friends with Xi Jinping to criticizing him and the relationship deteriorated awfully with COVID trade wars. Like what happened with foreign policy during Donald Trump, he sort of upended all the norms and then traditional allies like the European Union sort of became the enemy and in his eyes. 
and everything was upended and everything was different. And that sort of, for the world, I think the focus was, well, what's Donald Trump doing in terms of foreign policy? Now that the dust has settled and you're back to a more normal, in inverted commas, stance, I think there are big concerns about China, big concerns about Russia. Look at Russia eyeing up Ukraine. Look at China eyeing up Taiwan. And we had a uh, diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics announced last week by the US, much to the annoyance of Beijing. Also last week, Joe Biden held a summit for democracy, a virtual summit of world leaders, and very intentionally and pointedly did not invite Russia and China, who were very quick to criticize it. So there's definitely tensions there. And I think he is most definitely going to have his hands full over the coming years. As I said at the top, he is the foreign policy president. He's meant to be the guy that gets it. He knows these leaders. He's dealt with them for many, many years. So hopefully that will help him navigate his way through tricky times ahead. And you mentioned the manner in which Trump sort of upended things and, you know, damaged his relationships particularly with the EU. And Biden has been working now to repair some of those relationships. What role do you think he's going to play in Brexit over the coming year? Well, the Brexit debate I've always found very interesting because, of course, from being an Irish journalist here in Washington, you're always looking for the issues related to the Northern Ireland Protocol and what it's going to mean for Ireland. And I've found that quite interesting to watch um, over when Joe Biden had been elected. Through, during the election, we knew he was going to be very pro-Northern Ireland peace, very pro Good Friday Agreement. He, was, he would tweet statements about that when he was a candidate. After he got elected, he was in Wilmington, Delaware, preparing for his transition, getting ready to assume office. And we doorstepped him outside an event uh, about the Northern Ireland issue. And he said, yes, he said, Brexit cannot damage the Northern Ireland peace process. And he was very strong on that. And we've sort of seen that throughout where he speaks very passionately about the Northern Ireland peace process, very passionately about the Good Friday Agreement. But of course, there's a difference between the Northern Ireland peace process and the Good Friday Agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yes, it's designed to protect the peace, but the Protocol is a specific peace that we don't hear Joe Biden make too much specific reference to. And I'm reminded of a meeting he was having with Boris Johnson and the sense that before this meeting in the summer, he was the sense was, yes, he was going to raise the Northern Ireland Protocol as a specific issue. Boris Johnson came out afterwards and said they did discuss that. So I think you have a situation where he is very strong on peace, very strong on the Good Friday Agreement. You know, you could say, well, who isn't? You know, everybody wants that. When it comes to the intricacies of the UK sticking with an agreement that they have signed up to, we haven't heard him come out too strongly, I feel, on that front, on a very specific nature. Many of his staff have. Many senior members of Congress have. And there's most definitely a message coming out from the US of you have to stick to your agreements. I, I found it very interesting. Uh, two weeks ago, the Financial Times broke a story that the US Commerce Department had held up and had stalled the lifting of metal tariffs on the UK because of concerns over triggering Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So there definitely seems to be a sense that America is on the side of protecting the protocol, is concerned about Brexit, but again, it will be interesting to see how it all plays out over the coming years. And do you think part of that intervention might be a visit to Ireland at some stage? It's sort of the eternal question whenever there's a, a US president with any Irish connections. I think so. I think he most definitely wants to. There's no denying that. He couldn't do it in his first year. I guess, number one, it was his first year. He was so incredibly busy. Number two, with COVID restrictions. The sense that's always been given to me by people on both the US side and the Irish side is that if stroke when he does it, he wants the big parade. 
and he wants the shaking hands with people and walking up and down the streets and meeting the Irish people. That, of course, wasn't possible under COVID. I suppose the first thing we're going to see will be St. Patrick's Day. You'll recall that Joe Biden's first St. Patrick's Day as president, unfortunately for me, Martin had to be a virtual affair. Uh, it was still a powerful message and they still got to meet virtually with all the main players and, and have you know talks and all that kind of thing. So I think the first big diplomatic opportunity for Ireland will come this mar- next March, if indeed it can happen in an in-person way, that you'll have Michal Martin coming over. Will we see a Joe Biden visit next year? I don't know. Will we see a Joe Biden visit in his presidency? Absolutely. It's just a matter of when. Uh, midterm elections will certainly be his focus next year. Perhaps the image playing out on US media of him reconnecting with his roots in Ireland it would be a very positive story for him. It would be a very warm story for him. It should play well in the news media. Maybe the calculation will be, let's get him a trip to Ireland before the voters go to the polls in November. Uh, and of course, he will get that warm reception. He just speaks so positively about Ireland and is so proud of his roots. And proud Michelle of roots that, remember, go back quite a bit. It's not like it was his parents. I think it was his great-grandparents. You know, but he has kept that Irishness. He has kept that identity. And it's very, very much a part of him. And it very much dictates the way he speaks. His love of Irish poetry, his constant references to Ireland. There is a strong link and a connection there. And I think he will be very eager to visit. And you'll be coming back to Ireland yourself. Uh, you're returning for a new role. Can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so it's going to be the work and technology correspondent. Very excited about this one. So it's going to be so Ingrid Miley, our industrial relations correspondent, retired in the summer. So it's replacing her role in some ways with the work and industrial relations element and also bringing in a tech element. And I think it's a good mix because we all know work. And they, they took out the word industrial and industry because I think now these days with fewer people in trade unions, and all of us getting used to the new normal of working from home, the future of work, all of these changes that have occurred with COVID, coupled with the technology that's allowed us to do it, but also big, big concerns about the big tech companies, about privacy, about data protection. I think it's a very exciting time to be entering a role like this. It's a very topical role right now. So I'm really looking forward to it. It won't be busy as the US. It won't be as busy as covering Donald Trump, but it might come close. It's a broad area. It's an area I'm very excited about. So I'm looking forward to taking up that role uh, due to start that new job in February. So yeah, that will be exciting. And will you miss the US? I will. I will miss the friends we have made here, the neighbours that we got on so very well with. My kids made great friends here. My wife made great friends here. Uh, it's a wonderful country. It's upbeat. It's positive. There's a confidence from the people, a forwardness and assertiveness that maybe sometimes we Irish could learn a little bit from. I think we're also careful. Sometimes we're very polite and we don't want to offend everybody. I'm not saying Americans are offensive, but certainly they're far more forward uh, than we are. It's a country that's taken a battering most definitely in the four years I've been here. The institution of democracy, big, big divisions over politics, COVID, the big social issues. But they'll get through it. They're a confident people. They are a people that have great pride in their country and in their flag and in their anthem. And that's something that you see here playing out. And we've just come through the Thanksgiving season here, which actually was a season I ended up falling in love with. And a lovely holiday where people come together and celebrate. And it's not about presents. And it's not particularly commercial. It's just a nice time for people to get together and celebrate family and celebrate friends. Fourth of July, similar here. Big, big celebration. All about pride, all about respecting their cultures and their traditions. There's a lot that I will miss. And as a news story, as a new journalist, I, I have been blessed 
over the last four years to have covered some of the biggest news stories in the world that changed history in many ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, you'll miss lots of elements of it, but I'm also really, really excited about the new chapter and the next steps. So Brian, I'm going to ask you to take your crystal ball out now, um, because before we let you leave Washington, I want to know what your predictions are for the midterms. Well, as I said earlier, the traditionally, the party of the president does bad in the first midterms of his presidency. And I see no reason why this won't be any different this time around, barring a massive turnaround in Joe Biden's approval ratings in the next uh, eight months. I can't see the Democrats doing particularly well. I remember the margins are so tight. Uh, one or two seats in the Senate will make all the difference. A handful of seats in the House will make all the difference. So yeah, you could see the Republicans flipping Congress. Now, what I have found fascinating is, and the big question here is, when the Republicans go out campaigning over the coming months, what do they do with Donald Trump? Do you ignore him? Do you criticize him? Do you embrace him? And a lot of people are looking to a very interesting governor's election that we had here last month in the state of Virginia, when Glenn Youngkin of the Republican Party took on Terry McAuliffe of the Democratic Party. Terry McAuliffe was a Democrat stalwart, friend of the Clintons, former governor, had done everything. Very, very popular in the Democratic Party and was way ahead in the polls because the typically now Virginia has kind of flipped. It's become a Democrat blue state. It used to be a red state. And everybody thought that he had it in the bag. And then this guy, Glenn Youngkin, came along, who wasn't a seasoned politician. He's a millionaire businessman. And he campaigned very well. And he focused on some big, big issues that were bothering Virginians, the closure of schools, the teaching of race theory in schools, the wearing of masks in schools. And the school issue became a big thing. And in one ill-fated comment in a debate, and almost oftentimes in these debates, it's one little slip up. Uh, Terry McAuliffe said, parents shouldn't be able to tell teachers how to run schools. And Glenn Youngkin went with this and campaigned on it, and, and it was very successful for him. But what he also did, Michelle, was he knew how to walk that fine line with Donald Trump. Donald Trump endorsed him, but Glenn Youngkin never spoke about Donald Trump. He never campaigned with him. He never appeared on the rally stage with him. So he did this thing where he sort of accepted the endorsement, but at the same time, spoke as little with and spent as little time talking about or being associated with Donald Trump as possible. And it seemed to have been the pathway that worked. And perhaps this could be the blueprint for all Republican candidates next year. Because if you criticize Donald Trump, he'll destroy you and he'll tweet about, well, you can't tweet anymore. He'll issue statements about you. He'll go on Fox News and give negative interviews about you and will do his damnedest to scupper you. And he still has a huge support base. But what Glenn Youngkin was able to do was keep them on side, but also bring in those moderate in the middle Republicans who despise Donald Trump, people like women in the suburbs who really hated Donald Trump. He was able to bring them back into the Republican fold and thereby win this election. So if other Republicans can replicate that next year, it will be a very, very good midterms for them. I will say just on the Glenn Youngkin example, though, Interestingly, Donald Trump allowed that to happen. You know, I'm sure there were calls somewhere where Donald Trump said, hey, I'll come down and I'll appear on a rally stage with you. And he had to have that awkward moment of, well, uh, I'd actually prefer if you didn't. And Donald Trump accepted that. So maybe he won't be as accepting with every candidate. But look, that was a win for him. Of course, Donald Trump was very quick then to come out and say, it's, you know, thanks to my supporters that he won. Look, whatever the reason was, he won. It was a big win for the Republicans. It gives them a big, big boost going into those midterms where it looks like they're going to do very, very well. And I mean, what kind of influence do you think 
Trump is going to seek to have next year. Do you think there might be a couple of surprises from him in 2022? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got a, well, he's already endorsing candidates. We get the press release from Donald Trump. Of course, I always say to people, he can't tweet anymore, but he issues these press releases instead. And they're written like tweets. He finds a way. He finds a way and they're they're all in big capital letters with exclamation marks. Uh, they do not pack the same punch. And actually for Donald Trump, that is a big problem right now. I think getting his social media taken away from him is a big issue. As you probably know, he's launching his own social media platform, but would it pack the same punch? The difference was when he tweeted, well, because there was two things. When Donald Trump tweeted, he was the president. So of course, everybody listened and everybody reported it. But also the, the tweet was out there and public and the media latched upon it. Now he issues press releases that go to the inbox of journalists. Some, in some outlets, may broadcast them or report them, but the vast majority, they just go nowhere. He can't land the same punch. He will most definitely try to influence things running into the midterm. He's very, very critical of Mitch McConnell, the uh, minority leader in the Senate. He's extremely critical of him doing any deals with the Democrats, any whiff of bipartisanship, be it on an infrastructure bill or a debt ceiling bill. He's very quick to criticize Mitch McConnell for being too weak and for going along with Uh, the Democrats and for not uh, standing up for Republican issues. I think, again, I come back to this Glenn Youngkin candidate that we had here in Virginia. It highlighted that you could have an election with the Republicans where Donald Trump wasn't the singular issue and wasn't the main focus. And as I said, that election focused on issues like education and schools and COVID. And it moved the focus away from just a specific candidate-based Donald Trump persona and we saw people discussing other issues and it sort of brought politics back to i guess where it should be that here are issues of concern people have we're focusing on them it's a dividing line and let's debate it out and let the voters decide so i think we'll see more of that people the candidates may be trying to move away from donald trump but he 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 won't want to let that happen he wants to be front and center you know he's back campaigning again he's, he's got his campaign rallies he's doing these media tours he's doing lots of interviews again he certainly hasn't gone away and i think he will try to put his stamp on the midterm elections and for those republican candidates it will all be about navigating that and finding the best route to while keeping him on side keeping his supporters on side being careful not to embrace him too much because that can also be damaging and one last prediction that I'm going to ask you for, a very early prediction. Who do you think the next US president might be? This is a really tricky one because the the, the big, I mean, you've got so many. So in a normal election cycle, you have the president, Joe Biden is just a year into his presidency. And you would say that traditionally a sitting incumbent president goes into the next election with a big advantage and more often than not, they are re-elected. That didn't happen the last time, obviously. But that is completely impossible to say now, because while Joe Biden has said, yes, I'm going to run again, because of his age, nobody really believes that. And most people think he will do some sort of stepping aside and passing the torch. And then the follow-on question is, will pass the torch to who? Kamala Harris was supposed to be the heir apparent. She's not doing too well in the polls herself right now. And then layer into that and factor into that the Donald Trump question of will he be the Republican candidate again? And if so, what would that mean? And could you see a scenario where the Republicans are heading so much in the direction of Donald Trump that the Democrats decide, okay, let's put the age factor to one side and let's try and keep Joe Biden because he beat him the last time. Maybe he can do it again this time. So I am not going to make this prediction, Michelle, because I think there's too many unknowns. It's a really, really tricky, difficult one to say, Some polling would suggest that when Donald Trump is put against other 
rather Trumpian Republicans like the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, that he, he doesn't poll that well. And actually, there are others out there within the Republican Party who might out-Trump Trump and become this kind of Trumpian candidate in three years' time. I think it's too early to say, and I think it's really, really difficult to know. All I do know is it will be fascinating for whoever my successor is, and I would be very jealous of them getting to cover these really what is going to be a roller coaster of politics and, of course, all the other things that one covers when you're here in the U.S. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy packing schedule to, to join us and congratulations on the, all the work that you've done in Washington. I mean, it's really been great to have you over there and great to have you on the podcast twice. I mean, we'll have to find something to talk to you about next year that's not US politics now. Thanks again. Work in tech, work in tech. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, Michelle. It's been great. Lovely talking to you. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. And thanks again to Brian for joining me today. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>